following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world, so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. Well, good morning, friends. What a blessing it is to be before you. If you'll take your Bibles in hand and turn to 2 Timothy, we're going to continue our study of 2 Timothy this morning. Our verses for today are going to come from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 through 26. We're going to be finishing out chapter 2 this morning. We've been in chapter 2 now for several weeks, and so it's uh, exciting to kind of come to the end here and continue on through this beautiful, rich letter that we have before us as we once again look at Paul's kind of final thoughts as he writes this letter and he considers the reality of his coming death. That's forefront in his mind, and these are then what has been penned for us to study here. Starting in verse 14 of chapter 2, friends, I invite you to hear the words of our living God. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, after being captured by him to do his will. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, last week we had the opportunity to see Paul in his letter kind of turn away from his initial point of talking about Timothy needing to share in suffering and turn his attention more towards addressing false teaching. 
He even called out specific people, as we saw in our reading just there, Hymenaeus and Philetus, who had been spreading a false doctrine that the resurrection had already occurred. Paul, throughout verses 14 through 19, continued to use a technique, right, of contrasting what Timothy was to do with what false teachers did. He says, don't be like them. Do better. There's something that you are called to do. He says, unlike those who quarrel about words, do yourself to do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, having no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word. Unlike Hymenaeus and Philetus, avoid irreverent babble, which leads people to more and more ungodliness and spreads like gangrene. And then we came to verse 19. We see Paul remind Timothy that even in the midst of false teaching, even when it might seem like there's falsehood all around him, God's firm foundation stands. He's talking about the church, right? The pillar and buttress of the truth. And the church bears the seal. The Lord knows those who are his. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So we have building blocks here. That brings us to Paul's continual discussion of false teaching and the expectations now of Timothy and preachers to this day. So as we look at our text, we're going to see this continuation of Paul to Timothy to be a diligent, fearful worker for God. He wants him to be a good servant, a good bond servant, a slave unto God for his right use. As we look at our text, I invite you to see three overarching points. First, in verses 20 and 21, cleansed to be an honorable vessel. Cleansed to be an honorable vessel. Our second point comes from verses 22 through 25a. We're going to kind of split 25 here. Conduct for an honorable vessel. And our final point will come in 25b and 26. The cause of the honorable vessel. The cause of the honorable vessel. So let us dive into our text this morning as we look at our first point, cleansed to be an honorable vessel. Now in a great house, there's not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So we have this illustration that starts. Paul's been using illustrations throughout chapter 2. Don't you love that? He starts and he says, Be like a soldier. A soldier has one goal, to honor the one who enlisted him. Be like an athlete. He competes well. Be like a farmer who's working hard so that he might gather those first fruits. He even goes down and he says here in verse 14, or sorry, in verse 15, be a worker who is approved by God. He's using these illustrations to start being, kind of building this whole storyline that we're getting here. And he now comes to another illustration of a great house with vessels in the house, different instruments for gathering, for sharing, for presenting. You have all these different vessels. 
And he says in this great house. So what does that mean to be in a great house? How do we understand that text? Well, first, obviously, describing a great house would mean something that's large, right? We're not thinking of a great house and we're thinking of a one-bedroom apartment. We're thinking of a massive place, right? He's thinking of something that is huge with lots of people, lots of occupants. It's a large property. Paul is not, though, referring to a physical building. He's not talking about the White House. He's not talking about... The Queen's Castle, he's talking about something else, right? He's talking and, and using this as an illustration to talk about the church. He's building off his previous statement that we saw in verse 19. But God's firm foundation stands. The firm foundation being the church, he's building off that and he says, now there's a great house, the church. It's the same thing that 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, he says, the household of God, which is the church of the living God. This house, this great house, is the church, the visible church, what we see today. Paul has used the concept also of vessels before, right? If we look at a couple of texts, Romans chapter 9 and verse 21, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump? One vessel, it's the same word in the Greek, for honorable use and another one for dishonorable use. He's talking about God's sovereignty of choice, his ability to make Something for both honorable and dishonorable use. He can do this because he is the potter and we are the clay, right? 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7, referring to the gift of the gospel that's been given to us. He says, but we have this treasure in jars or vessels of clay to show that the surpassing power of God belongs to, or sorry, the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So these are not, uncommon illustrations he's using these and he says in this great house there's vessels he's talking about the people that are visible in the church those ones that have been claimed to be a part of the church the ones that are professing to be believers there's vessels of gold and silver but also those that are of wood and clay paul continues with what he's done previously here he starts building contrasts Remember, we saw in the last section last week, he's constantly contrasting Timothy with false teachers, the believer with the unbeliever, righteousness with unrighteousness. He's saying, this is truth and this is not. He's creating these contrasts and he's saying, Timothy, be over here. Don't be with those guys. Stay true. And he has it here again. He says, you have two different types of vessels, some that are made of precious metals, which the price is very high. When you think of gold and silver, if you've ever bought uh, for like a ring or a necklace or any type of jewelry, you buy something that is made of gold or silver, it's naturally more expensive than something that's made of wood or clay. It's just a simple, simple truth, right? They're meant for special occasions. They show power and the prestige of the owner. They show the overarching wealth of the owner that has these items. The others are made of wood and clay and would be more easily found and easily made. In the culture of that time, they would have been everyday use kind of items. They'd be things that would be frequently used and broken and then just trashed. They'd be used for all kinds of things, but some of those things would also be dishonorable things like human waste, trash, garbage. They'd be taken out and thrown away. 
Now, let us, uh, real quick, I just want to say, because I just read 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and I don't want to, because Paul says in there, we're vessels of clay. I don't want to say that we're all vessels of just trash and garbage. Now, granted, in our unrighteous state before Christ, amen, we are. We're filled with filth. We're disgusting. We're vile. But then we are made useful for the master, right? Paul doesn't just contrast the types of vessels out there, though. For the, but he makes a further distinction. He says that some are for honorable use and some are for dishonorable use. He's continuing these contrasting, contrasting statements. But before we dive into what that means and how we can understand that, I want to break down these two words. Honorable. Reverence. Uh, it's a price paid for an item or for a person. We see that even in reference to Christ. They talk about the 30 silver coins that were given to Judas for betraying Christ. And they say it was the price paid for him, for giving off this information. And what was the price paid for the field that would then be bought? So it's a sense of a price. It's a sense of something that has value. First Corinthians chapter seven, you were not bought. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. You were valuable. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. It's the same word. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So we have honorable, being something that's of value, that there's a price paid for it. That there's something of deference and reverence. It's, it's holy, it's set apart. It's special, right? And then we come to dishonorable. The Greek word symbolizes or signifies reproach, vile, shame. As we just read in Romans chapter 9, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump a vessel for honorable use and one for dishonorable use? Something that's for good and something that's for bad. Romans chapter 1, verse 26. For this reason, God, God gave them up for their dishonorable passions, right? He gave them over to their dishonorable passions, their vile, shameful passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. So it's being made clear here that honorable use includes being made for holiness and righteousness and for the Lord's work. While dishonorable use is seen as truly vile and shameful. So it seems like it would be clear, but faithful teachers and believers on this text have gone kind of two separate ways or differing ways with this. First, have, some have argued that this is talking about the church as a whole, which we do agree, amen. But they're saying that both believers, or both of them are believers, and some are just better and some are just worse. Some are good soldiers that honor the master, honor the one who enlisted him, and there's others that are just lazy. They're only fit for the most menial of tasks. Some have argued that this is referring to true teachers versus false teachers. We just come out of verses 14 through 19, and we see Timothy contrasted with Hymenaeus and Philetus, who were false teachers, right? And therefore, this is just a continuation not every preacher or teacher who claims to be for Christ is actually for him. Amen. That is true. 
Third, some have argued that it points to believers and unbelievers. That within the church, those that proclaim and profess to know Christ, you have both believers and unbelievers. And it's true, right? We know that within every church, there are people who are not true converts. There are people that will profess Christ, that will seem to be for Christ, but will not actually be for him. We know that because of Matthew 7, right? We had looked at that text before, where it says at the end, they will come before the Lord, and he'll say, Lord, Lord, did we not do these things in your name? And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. They professed him, but then when it came time, they were not actually saved. They did not know Christ and a true saving knowledge. So these are the three common views. All of these could be feasible for differing reasons, right? Based on the text and Paul's other writings. And one thing we know to be true is that within the visible church and in the world, as people look upon it, there's a wide variety of people, both believers and unbelievers. Some are true and some are not. We have preachers that bring truth every week to the people. Lord willing, we here are counted among those. And then there's simply false teachers bringing lies and blaspheming against the Lord to the people that they come before. It appears here, though, that Paul is staying in line with the overarching theme of the text. He's addressing false teaching and false doctrine. He desires that the church, in the view of the church, that it be cleansed from all unrighteousness, from all dishonorable use. Those that are not a part of this, get out. Be separated from. He has a clear mindset of there is something separating the honorable and the dishonorable. Those that would be set apart for the Lord's work and those that are not. Whether that means the true teacher versus the false teacher, the believer versus the unbeliever, we don't know for sure. But the clear message is there. We do not, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, desire to be dishonorable. If we desire to be dishonorable, then what's all this for? Why are we here? He continues, he says, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, because there's two types of vessels here, because there's vessels for honorable and dishonorable use, he says, If anyone cleanses himself. The Greek word here signifies not just a quick rinse. Like you do after you've been working in the yard and you just rinse off in the shower real quick, right? This is a thorough purging. This is a scrubbing clean. This is removing all the junk and the buildup and the just kind of the filth that has overtaken the bile. Cleanse out as... Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7 says, Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So he says, cleanse out, be clean from what is dishonorable. Remove what is considered to be dishonorable. That which is vile and shameful and reproachful. In light of the thought of false teaching and false believers then this means being cleansed from false teaching. Removing false teaching out of your life. Removing false beliefs out of your life. 
That means taking literally everything that you believe and saying, Lord, I want it to line with your scriptures. I don't want to just believe what I think it means. I don't want to just believe what I want it to mean, but I want, it to, believe, I want to believe what your word says. How many times have you heard a conversation or you've heard somebody say something and you go back to repeat it later and it's completely different? That's, that's basically every time I talk to my wife. I, my wife is very good at remembering conversations and I'm very not good at remembering conversations. And I'm thankful because she can always remind me of where I had promised to do something or where I had said of what I was going to do or what I've done. That's just the reality of our human nature. We have these things that penetrate our mind and certain things stick, right? Certain things we remember. We remember that we have an appointment next week. We might not remember the time, we might not remember the place, but we remember we have an appointment. It's our minds. And so what we're seeing here is he's saying, cleanse out anything dishonorable. Remove that which is not in line with God's word. You may have heard something from someone somewhere at one point in time and that's stuck. And for whatever reason, that little bit stuck. Test it. Take it. Don't just assume that you know what it says. Take it back to God's word. Ask the questions. Does this align? As he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, right? Remove the old leaven. It's talking about creating separation between the believer and the unbeliever. Remove from your midst that which is not good, that which is not holy. As we talked about last week, it's about not getting caught up in debates, not getting caught up with the tactics of a false teacher, but calling them to repentance, calling them to faith. It means putting to death sin. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And what? To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's that word again, cleansing. Confess your sins and be cleansed. You're called to know the word. Know the word of the Lord so that you can be separated from dishonorable beliefs and kept from communion with those that are false teachers. How can we know someone is a false teacher if we don't test it against the word? How can we know that someone is not preaching truth if we don't know what the word says? Someone could tell me today probably a lot about a topic I don't know, and I would have to distrust their word. I would hope that they weren't lying to me, right? They could tell me all about biology. I'm not a big biology buff. And they could say, here's everything that you could ever need to know about biology and chemistry. And I would just have to trust that they're right on that topic. However, it, with the word, we have this in front of us. We can know it. So when somebody comes and they say, say something, we can say, that's not what the text says. That's not what that means. We have the ability. So know the word. So removing what is dishonorable entails that our hearts and our minds and our wills and our speech and our theology is all made honorable. By removing anything that goes against the will and the word of God. And notice what that leads to. He says, he will be a vessel for honorable use. To be cleansed from that which is dishonorable will make you a vessel for honorable use. This is what Timothy is to strive for and what we as believers should be striving for today. We desire to be honorable 
for, we just strive to be for honorable use. A use that is considered reverent. That our price, the price that was paid for us on the cross was not in vain, but it was put to good use. We know that the Lord will make that a reality. We desire to be able to serve the Lord and be used for His glory, which is truly an honorable use. And notice how he breaks it down from there. He says, set apart as holy, useful to the master, ready for every good work. An honorable vessel, if you are that, you are set apart for holiness, useful to the master, ready for every good work. Set apart as holy or sanctified, right? Growing in godliness and holiness. We see this as, From Genesis all the way to Revelation, this word is used, sanctified, being set apart. It's talking about God and his people, always in contrast with the world. He's saying, you be sanctified, you be separate from the world. You are different, you are brought out of it. To be useful to the master, being easy to use, profitable, bringing honor to the one who enlisted you. Not a waste of effort, but but useful. This is the person who has rightly come under true submission to the master and has said, use me how you will. As we read this text and we think of First Timothy, or of Timothy as a whole, we think of a man who was being used in a public ministry, right? He was a man that was going and proclaiming God's truth to the church, out into the streets. He was professing Christ, sharing the gospel. But that's not the only instance of being an honorable vessel. When he says useful to the master of the house, how many people here, you have a multi-tool, right? You have something that has multiple functions for you. You have something that is useful in multiple scenarios, multiple situations. That's what he's talking about. Whether that's something that seems as tedious as turning on the air in the morning so that the preacher is comfortable as he preaches, or whether that's something more public like the actual preaching or leading in worship. All of those things are being useful to the master for his glory and for the good of his people. And he says, ready for every good work. Has the meaning of being prepared, right? The word here in the Greek is drawn from these oriental customs, these old Asian customs where the king would send people out to level the roads before him to make sure that they were passable. He would send a group out and he would say, make sure that road is cleared. I don't want to have to stop on my way. I don't want to hit any bumps while I'm I'm riding. I want to be in comfort. That's what it means. It's saying be prepared, being leveled out being brought under submission to God's word so that whenever the time comes that you're ready for every good work because you already know what the Lord desires. You already are ready. You don't have to brush up. You don't have to go and say, oh man, I got to clear this out before I can do this. I got to go and get rid of this before I can do that. No, that you're prepared to do the labor that brings honor to God. So our desire should be to be workers approved by God, sanctified, ready to serve in any capacity for the good work of the Father. So, so Paul has set out for us a reality that our desire as believers should be 
what? To be vessels of an honorable use. That we should be cleansed from anything dishonorable to become truly honorable. Set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. To do this, we must be in the word. We must confess our sins. We must keep clear lines of separation from the world. As believers, we are not of this world. And that needs to be clear. One of the problems we see so much with false teaching today is a desire to be in the culture and of the culture. But Christ has made it clear that's not us. We're not in the culture. We're not of this culture. We see so many Christians that desire to stay in tune thinking that it will bring righteousness. But it will only bring destruction. So we've seen our first point. Cleansed to be an honorable vessel. Let us now turn our attention to our second point as we look at the conduct of an honorable vessel. And reading in verse 22, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call upon the Lord, sorry, call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. As we look at this section, we're going to see that Paul is specifically talking to Timothy as the Christian minister, right? He's laying out things as a Christian minister. However, let us not be dismayed into thinking that this is not applicable to all of us. As we saw with the qualifications for elder in 1 Timothy, everything still applies with the exception of being able to teach. That's the only qualification that's set apart for the elder that is not for everyone else. These are expectations of the Christian life. So if Timothy is to be set apart as a good worker, there are things that should be characteristic of him. But these are also things that should be characteristic of all Christians. As our desire should be to be more in conformity to the image of Christ... We see these things being the characteristics of Christ. And with the exception of being able to teach, which we see again here, is applicable to all believers. And he starts, so flee youthful passions. The Greek word here, fuego, sets the tone of being like a fugitive. It's where we get the word fugitive. On the run, fleeing, to run away with, escaping. It's an imperative, it's... He's saying, run away and continue to run away from youthful passions. It rings true for some sense of like a younger folks, but it's not only applicable there. There can be many older folks that are still caught up in the youthful passions. And what are those youthful passions? Well, the first thing that people think of is sexual sin, right? Which is indeed part of it. But not all of it. Youthful passions include things like Pride, desires for wealth and prosperity, envy and jealousy, desires for power and self-promotion, being the most knowledgeable, like the false teachers we were talking about, right? Always having to be the know-it-all, always having to be the one who's correct, always having to be the one who can tell you exactly how it should be done because they had had the education or they had done the work somewhere, not open to receiving correction. Timothy is a relatively younger man, being roughly 30 years younger than Paul. 
was to flee these youthful passions. They would not be beneficial for the church or for himself. Brothers and sisters, this is the case for us. We must flee youthful passions. But the question is, is this doesn't just apply to the ministry, right? It's applicable to every one of us. How do youthful passions help or hurt yourself or the church? Desires for wealth prevent true generosity. Sexual sin prevents us from true fellowship. Desires for power and self-promotion prevents us from true love. Not receiving correction prevents us from true sanctification and being made more into the likeness of Christ. We see that youthful passions are not just a problem for the minister, but for all of us, and we must flee them. But we're not just running away. Notice how he continues. He says, run away from these, but then run towards something. He says, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. He takes us from the negative flee to a positive pursue. It's like turning your attention away from something and turning it towards something else. To seek after it earnestly and eagerly. And notice he says, not to pursue anything but things that are of the Lord, right? He says, righteousness, having the conduct that pleases God, that glorifies him. Faith, some have said this could also be translated as faithfulness, to be loyal and trustworthy. Loyalty to God, to his word, to his work, to his people. It's being one who is truly to be relied upon because he is a loyal servant that desires the right thing. Love. The type of love here is described of God himself. The love between the father and his son. The love of Christ for his people, this sacrificial love, peace, serenity. He's talking about peaceful relationships between man and God, between man and other men. As Romans chapter 12 and verse 18 says, if possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. Have good relationships, not arguing, not quarreling, not fighting all the time, but be at peace along with those that call on the Lord from a pure heart. Those that call on the Lord from a pure heart is pointing to the true believer, right? The believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. The true believer calls upon the Lord from a pure heart and does these things. They flee youthful passions. They pursue righteousness. They pursue faith. They pursue love. They pursue peace. All these things are a part of having a pure heart. That's all a part of having a pure heart that calls upon the Lord. So believer, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Run towards them. Flee your youthful passions and run, run, run towards the things of God. His righteousness, his faithfulness, his love, and his peace. And have nothing to do with foolish Ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. Once again, Paul comes back. We're doing these contrasting back and forth, right? He says negative, flee. He says positive, pursue. He comes back to a negative, have nothing to do with. Foolish, ignorant controversies. 
Paul has talked about something similar before, right? We've seen it in his talk about false teaching. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. As I urged you when I was in going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor devote themselves to the myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, these ignorant, foolish controversies. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3-5, through 5, If anyone teaches a different doctrine that does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 28 through 21. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you, and avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have sorted from the faith. And as we looked at last week, right, he even talks about it in verses 14 through 17 of chapter 2 in 2 Timothy. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble. For it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will be spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. So these foolish, ignorant controversies, this irreverent babble, these talks that are just all about conspiracy and speculation of things. He says these foolish things, these dull, silly, lacking good judgment, stupid things, avoid them. Notice he, it's kind of fun because he says, he backs up. He says, foolish and ignorant. They lack good judgment and they lack true knowledge. They're dull and they're dumb. These controversies that just cause speculation and conspiracies. They lack anything that's worthwhile. And all they lead to is they breed quarrel. They cause debate and fighting. It's the same word that we saw in uh, chapter 2, verse 14, right? And he says, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words. It's the same word here. It's this debates, this battling over words, bickering and fighting. Trivial matters that don't actually lead to any real godliness or any real change. Foolish, ignorant controversies breed quarrels. And it says the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. So how do you not be quarrelsome? You avoid these foolish, ignorant controversies. He says the Lord's servant, doulos, right? The bondservant, the slave. It's pointing to Timothy, to those preachers and teachers and leaders. And he's saying, you must not be quarrelsome. Not be given to fighting and to constantly battling. But kind to everyone. Paul has used this before when talking about himself. First Thessalonians chapter 2, he says, 
in verse 7, but we were gentle or we were kind among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. When you think of a nursing mother and you think of the sense of gentleness, right? Holding them and caring for them, knowing that they are weak, knowing that they are frail and fragile. And he says, we were gentle, we were kind with you. And he says, that's the same thing that Timothy is supposed to do. And that's the same thing that all teachers of the gospel are supposed to do. But also all of us, right? We're called on to be kind. It points to the sense of humility and meekness. A sense of softness. Not in the sense of being squishy. Not in the sense of not willing to speak truth or to proclaim truth. But in the sense of being kind. Not harsh. Not mean, just for being mean's sake. We have so many false teachers even out there today that step up to a pulpit and they think that it's just enough if they're just mean. They say hateful things and they speak hateful words and they think this draws people in, it causes conviction and that's good enough. But that's not what we're called to be. It says to be kind. Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And what does Christ say here? For I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. Christ gives us the perfect example, right? He says, be gentle like me. He was the one that was out teaching the people and it was gentle. Wasn't false. Didn't hide any truths. He didn't avoid any conversations. He didn't even avoid telling people when they were just downright wrong. But he also was not overly harsh. He wasn't just yelling at people, telling them that they would burn in hell. He said, yes, you will if you keep up in this, but here's the way out. I am the way and the truth and the life. And it says as he continues, he's able to teach it's the same word that we saw in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2 when talking about elders. It doesn't signify a sense of surpassing knowledge or some higher education that's better than everyone else. That's what the false teacher relies on, right? That was the tactic of the false teacher. I'm better than you because I know more than you. No, that's not what he's saying. He says, able to teach, able to communicate effectively and clearly what is being taught. He's able to take this word of God and able to accurately and precisely give it to the people in a way that they will understand and that brings them into deeper commitment to their faith into deeper sanctification through the spirit that both convicts but also gives the way of actual change and it says patiently enduring evil talk about a challenging one right Patience while enduring evil or wrongdoing. wrongdoing. Once again, Christ uh, gives us the perfect example, right? 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 23. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. 
Christ gives us this perfect example of patience. And the beautiful gift is that patience is a gift given to us, right? And, and so we can entrust both as we look to Christ as our example, but we also know that he can grant us patience as we endure the suffering that will come. As we endure the evil and the wrongdoing that will come. Not concerned with our own well-being, but more concerned with the truth. And willing to take whatever wrong will come with that. Correcting opponents with gentleness. To instruct or to guide, right? To correct, it's to be able to teach and to instruct and to guide people away. And when he's talking about opponents, he's probably talking specifically about those false teachers, those ones that were opposing the truth. He's talking about Hymenaeus and Philetus and Alexander and all the false teachers that have been in Ephesus. And he says, with gentleness, once again, going back to being gentle, meek, a sense of humility. It's not weakness. It's not weakness, but it's a sense in which there's humility. There's kindness. So the teacher is to instruct those that are opposing the truth with humility, with meekness. So friends, thus far we have seen that we are called to be cleansed to be an honorable vessel. Our first point, right? We have turned our attention now to our second point, conduct for an honorable vessel. Let us now finish out chapter 2 this morning as we look at our final point, the cause of the honorable vessel. And reading from verse 25 through 26, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. We saw that Timothy was called to correct opponents with gentleness. But why? They are false teachers. They are those that are living opposed to God. Why would you want to be gentle or meek? Why would you even care? Why would you not just shun them out and say, I don't even want to think about you? And he says, there's two reasons here. First, that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of truth. The desire is that all come to the place that we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. We desire that everyone comes to a place of true repentance. But notice what is said here, that God may also grant them this repentance. This is not something that is brought about by their own doing. Repentance is a gift of God, and not something that we can choose to have. Repentance goes beyond, frequently repentance is associated with feeling sorry. Right? That's what we hear. You, if you're repentant, you're feeling sorry. But that's not what we see here. It's not just feeling sorry for what we've done. But goes to an inner change of the heart. Wherein there is a complete change of direction. It's turning. Once again, it's that fleeing youthful passions to pursue something else. Repentance is fleeing the sin to pursue that which is righteous. Turning from the sin to what God has commanded of you. For that to happen, God must make it a reality. It's not something we do on our own. And what does repentance lead to? He says a knowledge of truth. 
another gift of God. The knowledge of truth only comes from God. That knowledge of truth is the truth of God and his gospel and the Christ that has died on our behalf. It's the truth of our own sinfulness. Being able to see clearly, with clear eyes, who we really are. And our desperate, desperate need for a savior. It's the truth of Christ. Having come into this world, living the perfect, sinless life, dying on a cross in our place for our sins. So that's the first thing. That they might have repentance, which leads to a knowledge of truth. But the second reason that he's to correct his opponents with gentleness is this. That they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Coming to, their sentence, coming to their senses points to the sense of being sobered up, right? Sober-minded, which some translations use. They use the term sobering up. It's coming back to our right mind. We use sobering up. It's when we talk about somebody who's had too much alcohol and they're drunk, right? They say, just wait until he sobers up. Don't have a conversation with him until he sobers up. Wait until... He, he can't make decisions to, for himself until he sobers up. It's the same thing that's being said here. It's as if they're in a stupor. And it says that they may come to their senses. It's only through this sobering up that they can see clearly and escape the snare of the devil. What is that snare? What is the snare that he's talking about? Based on the context here, we can say it's probably talking about the false teaching in Ephesus. It's safe to say that Paul would desire that the false teachers and those that are following them sober up. That they come to their senses and flee, escape the snare, break free from it and run. After being captured by him to do his will. They've been trapped They've been trapped by Satan in this false teaching and these false beliefs to do his will. And what is the will of Satan? But to destroy the church and to lead others away from God and Christ. He says to, to do his will is to spread false doctrine. Prevent others from knowing the gospel, the true gospel that will actually save your soul. Thankfully, the God who grants repentance is also the God that breaks you free from your captivity to sin and to Satan. And so our desire as believers and the desire of the Christian minister is that God may grant freedom from sin to all those who are held captive. Our desire is that they may obtain the freedom and the glory of the children of God as Romans chapter 8 and verse 21 says. It's not to say that Timothy can free the people. It's not to say that we can as Christian ministers or you and as you hear this can free anyone from their sin but rather through our example rather through gentle correction God may grant divine favor to bring about repentance and freedom from Satan and sin oh how do we, how we desire that right that everyone turn from where they've been captured escape the snares and pursue righteousness. That they come to their senses. That they're sobered up. 
that they seek forgiveness from the Father, the one that can give it, through Christ, the one that can save them. And so as we close today, I want to highlight just a few items from our text. Because our minds are so feeble as to forget everything in just a few minutes, I want to leave you with these things. Our desire, Christians, is to be honorable vessels, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work, whatever that may be. To do this, we must flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with other believers. We should be avoiding to be yoked with this world, not engage in foolish controversies as they will only lead to more and more ungodliness and fighting. Rather, the believer should be kind, patient in everything, patient as they endure evils, correcting others with gentleness. But how do we do all these things? It's not going to be any earth-shattering thing here. Pray. Seek the Lord. Confess your sins, knowing that He can cleanse you. Seek Him, knowing that He can grant you these things that you desire, to be righteous, to be faithful, to know the love of Christ, and to be able to share that love, and to have peace with one another. So pray unto God. Read God's Word. Be saturated in the truth. As we saw, there's literally no way for us to combat truth if we don't know truth. Truth is not relative, friends. It's not whatever we want it to be. It's what God says it is. And so we, not, we must hold on to the truth. And the only way we can do that is by knowing his word. And finally, prioritize God-honoring and God-glorifying fellowship. We must be around other believers. Does this mean we cut off everyone else, every, everyone in the world? No, we still have a call upon our lives to go out and share this gospel. We still have people in our workplaces that we can't ever avoid, right? We're going to have to engage. And we are called to do so. That is our God-honoring call, is to go into the world and to proclaim His truth. But we, meet, we must prioritize God-honoring, God-glorifying fellowship. Spending time with other believers who can encourage, who can call us to truth, who can challenge us, who can encourage us in all ways to seek these things that he's called us to do, to pursue these callings. Notice that all these things revolve around God. Pray unto God. Read God's word. Prioritize God honoring and God glorifying fellowship. Confess your sins unto God. Everything is about God. It's all coming back to Him because He is the one that gives it. Believers, if you try to reach in on your own strength to, re- to achieve honorable use, you will fall back into your youthful passion. In our own strength, we will naturally go back to our own pride and our own self-sufficiency. In our own strength, what we do is we step in and we say, I got this. And when we get there, then it's all about what we did. It's all about how great we are. It's all about how strong and powerful we have become. However, in the Lord, as we seek to be vessels for honorable use, 
He will cleanse us from the filth within. He will make us humble and able to serve him according to his will. So as we close, I encourage you, be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, ready for every good work and useful to our master. Join me in prayer as we close.